Well, friends, let me invite you to open up your Bibles uh, to 1 John, uh, or you can look on the wall behind me. Um, but today, as I, we've said before, that today is the first Sunday of Advent, and it's the season of the church calendar that where we are uh, putting our hearts, we're setting our attention on the fact that Christ is coming. And certainly within the biblical story, it's very clear that there is a historic element to this. We actually sang about this in O Come, O Come, Emmanuel, because here's Jesus. He is the long-awaited, he's the promised, the prophesied Messiah. So in the uh, narratives in the Gospel of Luke, you see Simon, you see Anna, and they see this child and they say, Oh, I have prayed for this child. I've hoped for this child. It's wonderful. And so there's this historic elements to Advent. But the reality is, is that as we put our faith in Jesus Christ, Christ is working within us. There's this present reality that we are becoming more like Jesus Christ and we are seeing Jesus appear and reveal himself daily to us in our daily lives. So there's this present reality to the fact that Jesus is, is coming. It's not that Jesus came, it's that Jesus is coming, but there's also a future reality that one day Jesus will come again. There's this future reality, and Advent wonderfully captures this tension of all three of these aspects that Christ of Christ's coming, of this past, present, and future reality. And 1 John highlights this for us. And today we're going to be reading from 1 John chapter 2 beginning in verse 28, and we'll stop at 3, verse 2. I know on the worship guide and on the wall it goes to verse 3, but we'll stop at verse 2. But let's give our careful attention to the reading of God's word. And now, little children, abide in him, so that when he appears, we may have confidence and not shrink from him in shame at his coming. If you know that he is righteous, you may be sure that everyone who practices righteousness has been born of him. See what kind of love the Father has given to us, that we should be called children of God. And so we are. The reason why the world does not know him, does not know us, is that it did not know him. Beloved, we are God's children now. And what we will be has not yet appeared. But we know that when he appears, we shall be like him because we shall see him as he is. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be God. Amen. Let me pray for us. Father God, we thank you for your good word that you have given to us. And we, and we pray that your spirit would minister deeply in our hearts, that your spirit would plant your word deep in our hearts so that we would grow and become more like you that we would know you, that you would convict us of our sin and turn our hearts in repentance towards you. It's in Christ's name I pray, amen. The great Italian Renaissance artist, Michelangelo, he only signed one sculpture in the entirety of his career. It was the Pieta. It was a sculpture of Mary holding her crucified son, uh, Jesus. It was placed and it was installed in St. Peter's Basilica in 1500. It was largely untouched for hundreds of years until 1972 when someone broke in with a hammer and began smashing this sculpture. The attack shattered her left arm, broke her nose, 
disfigured her left eye and veil. And so over the next year, restoration experts would pick up the shards. I'm thinking about this process. They would just pick up the shards and they would put the, the pieta back together. This is a picture of our world. This is our picture of our own hearts and our world in light of both sin and God's redemption. Because the reality of sin is that sin has vandalized creation. Sin has touched everything within God's world. It's corrupted it. It's polluted it. It's even become part of our very nature, marring our fundamental identity as God's image bearers. And so this question that we're asking this Advent season is, why did Jesus come? Why did Jesus come? In a sense, Jesus came to restore God's good and beautiful creation, to undo the vandalism that sin has occurred or sin has afflicted and Vandalized, And so over the next few weeks, we're going to consider the reasons that John gives to this question of why did Jesus come? But we're going to be specifically looking at 1 John. But John does not use this language of why does Jesus come? He uses this language that we saw twice here of appear. You see this in verse 28? So that when he appears, you see this in verse 2, that when he, when he appears again. That like, so this Greek word appear can be translated as reveal, manifested, or appear. But to look ahead, here's 1 John 3, 5. That Jesus appeared to take away our sins. I can't wait for verse 8, though. That Jesus appeared to destroy the works of the devil. That sounds great. For, and then chapter 4, verse 9, that Jesus appears so that we would live through him. And this is John, the writer of John's gospel. And so when John 10.10 10 writes that Jesus says to us that I have come so that you would have life to the fullest or have abundant life. That's what Paul, John has in mind here. And so here in our text, though, to come to our text before us this morning, why does Jesus come? Why does Jesus Come, according to 1 John 2, 28 through 3, 2. And we see, as I just mentioned, verse 28, this is what we read. And now, little children, abide in him so that when he appears, we may have confidence and not shrink from him in shame in his coming. So the first question I want you to think about this morning is, how will you respond to Jesus when he appears? How will you respond to Jesus when he appears? Because this verse, verse 28, highlights something for us. That there is actually a problem. That we would be ashamed when Jesus comes. That when Jesus appears, we will be ashamed. And John is using the same language, the same words that Jesus used in Matthew 22. That's the parable of the wedding feast. And the king... um, says to a guest, how in the world did you get in here without a garment? And so the the guest was speechless. That word speechless is the same idea for being ashamed. But can you just imagine right there the shame of being a wedding guest at a wedding without a garment? That's what Jesus is bringing us to. But back in Genesis, another biblical reference, back in Genesis in the Garden of Eden, there's Adam and Eve. 
They sin against God, and so they hide from him. And God's walking through the garden asking a question. It's not a question of condemnation, but it's a question that highlights something. He's asking, where are you? And this is highlighting the fact that they are hiding. God knows they are hiding from him, but they are hiding. And so this question here of shame, how would you respond to Jesus when he comes? There's shame to the degree that we hide from Jesus. Have you ever been caught in the act of doing something wrong? Or have you ever been found out? It's like, oh, I know you did this, and someone comes to you. Parents, we see this in our children, but also, we're being honest, every single one of us has has done this, not just once, twice, three, hundreds of times. But there is shame, there's embarrassment, there's guilt, because we have done something wrong. And this is exactly what John is saying, that when Jesus comes, we're going to be ashamed, we're going to be guilty, and convicted because of something very very, very deep. And it's in verse 29 that you may be sure that he is righteous. That he, The point is that here's Jesus. He's righteous, he's holy, he's good, he's perfect. And we are unrighteous, we are not good, we are imperfect, we are sinners, we are rebels, we are vandals. And so the reality is that when we come and meet God, when Jesus appears to us, our Sinful response, because our response due to our sin is to truly fall apart. Think about Isaiah chapter 6, verses 1 to 7. Isaiah, this is what you would read there. That in the year that King Uzziah died, I saw the Lord. So Isaiah has this vision of the Lord. And he sees the, the Lord. And what Isaiah does is that he falls down to his knees, and he says, Woe is me, for I am a man of unclean lips. The question is, how do you respond to Jesus when he comes? But as I ask this question, John is not actually focusing it on our guilt here. John is actually full of hope for us. And so the question is, what is John's hope for us here? And this is, again, verse 28, the hope of abiding in Christ. Abide in him so that you will have confidence when he appears. And so the language of abiding should feel very familiar to you. It's John 15 when Jesus says that I am the vine, you are the branches. Abide in me and I will abide in you. And so that's John's language to describe a very important idea within Scripture. It's the union with Christ. Paul would use different language, that you are in Christ, you are hidden in Christ, that Christ is in you, and you are in him. That's union with Christ. And so here we have this idea of abiding in Christ. Now, Athanasius was a church father, lived 1,700 years ago. He's a bishop in the church of Alexandria. And there was a controversy at his time, and he stood against very powerful and political forces to the point that he was exiled from his city and his church seven times. But he wrote this incredible book entitled On the Incarnation. And so he gave a lot of thought to who Jesus is and why he came. And so this is what he said in, in this book. He became what we are 
so that we would become like him. Such is our union with Christ. Look at verse 29. If you know that he is righteous, you may be sure that everyone who practices righteousness has been born of him. And so to use Athanasius' words, that he became what we are so that we would become like him. What Jesus does is that he restores us. He undoes the vandalism of sin within our heart. He enables us and empowers us to be righteous. And so we are created to be God's image bearers, to display his love, his reign, his righteousness, his goodness, his character to the world. We are meant to make him known, but our sin and our sinfulness we don't because our image bearing is marred and broken. And so see, what, when to come back to the biggest question of why does Jesus come, Jesus comes fundamentally to show us who God is. He reveals who God is in his character, in his goodness, but he also reveals something about ourselves that we are sinners in need of deep grace. But it's not just that. Jesus doesn't just show us our deep need for him. Jesus actually shows us who we can be. In fact, who we are meant to be. That we are meant to be the image bearers of God. So Rankin Wilborn, in his book, Union with Christ, he writes this, that Christ sets you free to be your true self, the self you are by grace and not the self you are by nature. This tarnished image of God in you has been fully redeemed, bought back out of bondage, and is now being fully restored. One day it will be finished, and that day is when Jesus will come again. So back to John. What John is getting at with our hope here is that if we want to stand with confidence when Christ appears, we must abide in Christ. Because in Christ, we have no reason to hide, to be embarrassed, to be ashamed, or speechless. In fact, Jesus came, he appeared, and he died upon the cross, and he wrote, defeated death through his resurrection. Jesus did all that knowing everything about us. So why would we have any reason to be ashamed when Christ has loved us to the point of dying upon the cross, rescuing us from our sins? And he, that is a wonderful picture of the gospel, that when we abide in Christ, we have every confidence before him. And so you're in, empowered to stand boldly. You won't be speechless. You're able to be face-to-face and stand before the embodiment of perfection. But to keep going here, John has this wonderful hope here for us. And this continues. Look at, let's look once again in 3 verse 1. And this is where we see this wonderful gift of adoption for us. And, but this is right on the heels of this, of this phrase, if you are born of him. So John's thinking about adoption. If you are born of him, then you are practicing love and you're practicing righteousness. And so John highlights our adoption, where God is our heavenly father. And one way that you see a relationship is actually through shared character. So, for example, you'll see my boys. And you'll say, and when my boys will do something, you'll be like, oh, I can see Robbie doing just that. Or that sounds a lot like Jennifer. Because children act like their parents. And the whole reason for that is that children 
exhibit their parents' qualities because they share their nature. And so what is being highlighted for us here in verse 29 is that righteousness and good deeds and love, that is the proof of our relationship, of the fact that we are abiding in Christ, not the cause of it, not the condition of it. It's actually what we see, what we see because Christ of what Christ is doing for us. And the wonderful truth is God is always working in your life. This past week we, in our community group, we spent some time just going around the room asking the question, how have you seen God at work in your life recently? And almost everyone was sharing answers to this wonderful question. But at the end of it, Eve, she's not here. But she said like, whoa, this is so encouraging to me. This stuff is real. God is at work in each and every single one of us. That's the promise of scripture, that when we abide in Christ, we're going to see God working within us. And so John is drawing our attention here to consider our adoption. It's one of our greatest spiritual uh, blessings of our union with Christ. I know I said a moment ago, let's look at verse 1. Now let's really look at verse 1. 3, verse 1. See what kind of love the Father has given us that we should be called children of God and so we are. See, John's word here is full of awe and adoration. See what kind of love that God has for us. The Greek actually is like the love is out of this world. It's out of this country. So it's extraordinary. This is a love that does not characterize our relationships in any way, shape, or form. He's talking about this wonderful gift of adoption. Because when you think about adoption, we are rebels against God. We are the vandals, and yet God makes us his children. That we are forsaken, but he makes us his friends. That we are orphans, and he makes us his children. We get to refer to God the Father using the very same name that Jesus does. We get to say, God is our Father, and we get to use intimate language and say, God is our dad, our daddy. That's Romans, that Paul says, Abba, Father. That's incredible, that the creator of the universe is our Father. It's mind-blowing. And this wonderful reality of our adoption is it's a present reality, it's a future reality, it's it's absolutely something that we, who we are right now, and we don't see the full glory of being God's uh, children. Now, we are God's children, his sons and daughters, here and now. If you look at verse 2, beloved, we are God's children now. And what we will be has not yet appeared, but we know that when he appears, we will be like him. See, when Jesus returns again, we will be full of glory. Theologians describe this as glorification. And when Christ returns for the Christian, Christ is not coming with judgment, but for our glorification. The Apostle Paul makes it clear in 2 Corinthians 3, we are being transformed into the same image from one degree of glory to another. Jesus even prayed in John 17, 22, that we would share in his glory. And so with every passing day, with every passing day, we are being transformed and becoming more like Jesus Christ. Perhaps most astonishingly on this, 
I found this quote by John Calvin. In a similar vein to Athanasius, he said this, the purpose of the gospel is to make us sooner or later like God. Indeed, it is, so to speak, a kind of deification. He's not saying the gospel is to make us God. He's, no, that we are being restored to being God's image bearers, of reflecting his wonderful glory. Now, we don't know what, we do not know what this wonderful glory is going to fully look like for us. But John is clear that when Christ appears again, we shall be like him. We shall be like him for we shall see him as he is. That reminds me of the, the beatitude. Blessed are the pure in heart for they shall see God. I hope this is deeply encouraging because it is to me. We're all gathered as sinners and we live in a sinful world. When I'm discouraged by my own sin, I need to hold on to this truth. When I'm frustrated at my lack of spiritual growth, I need to hold on to this. When I'm disappointed in others, I need to remind myself of this wonderful truth because every single one of God's children will finally be like him. Isn't that amazing? It does not matter who you are. It does not matter what you have done. You could be the spouse struggling with sin. You will be like him. You, would, you could be the college student struggling with partying. You will be like him. You could be the person driving behind the, the wheel and ha- full of anger and rage at other drivers. You will be like him. You could be disgruntled, discontent. You will be like him. You could be struggling, anxiety, and indecision. You will be like him. You may wonder what your purpose is. You will be like him. Our future is bright and sure because of Jesus. He He has made us God's children. This is deeply encouraging. Paul David Tripp beautifully captures why this is good news. And we'll end with this. But he says that there is no such thing as redemption without the final funeral of sin. Sin will die. So imagine a life without the seduction, stain, deceit, destruction, and death that sin has reigned upon humanity. Imagine life without the daily spiritual warfare. Imagine the final defeat and destruction of the devil where you are fully free from the burden and present bondage of sin. It almost seems too good to be true, but it's not. In fact, this is why Jesus came. He came so that we would be like him. Thanks be to God. It's deeply, deeply incredible and great news. Let's pray. Father God, we thank you for your wonderful good news that you have sent your son, that your son has appeared to us so that we would become like you. We thank you for this good news. And Father, we pray that you would help us to abide in you, that we would be aware of the things that distract us from spending time with you, that you would help us to fix our minds and ground our truth, ground ourselves in your truth and your word. And Father, we pray that as we put away and repent, that that you would help us to put away and repent of the things that 
do distract us, that you would help us to put aside the idols that do compete with you, that you would truly help us to abide in you so that in the coming days and weeks ahead that we would see your son, Jesus Christ, that we'll see Christ-likeness in our daily lives. In Christ's name I pray, amen.